0: Factors. not available. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. men in the street are afraid to open their mouths and utter godless words lest the judgment of God should fall when sinners are overawed by the presence of God and they begin to tremble without any special meetings with no sensational advertising The Holy Ghost sweeps across cities and towns in supernatural power and holds men in the grip of terrifying conviction. This is revival. It is of God. It is the supernatural power of God when He comes down and begins to grip men and women and they begin to see the true condition of their hearts. The great fear I have instead of revival, God may bring judgment, destruction to America. I know we're right at that breaking point where either God is going to pour out his power in revival or he is going to pour out his judgment. And he may do both. We need to see revival. Before we went on the air today, Alexandra prayed and said, Lord, would you send revival in the radio listening audience? That's what we're praying for you. That God supernaturally, while you're listening to this broadcast, will bring deep conviction of sin to your heart and to your life, and He will touch you with healing, and you'll get right with Jesus. We need God. We need Him to come and revive His church. And so we stand, praying, crying out to Jesus, eagerly looking for a response from you. Will you respond? Will you respond? We're going to share more today. About the supernatural features of visitation by God listen carefully and prepare your heart for the visitation of God that we are praying for pray with us pray for us pray for your family pray that God will come it's our only hope we don't need music Concerts. We don't need big-name preachers coming to entertain. We need God. We need the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. And in studio with me is Alexandra, my wife. And today is her birthday. Happy birthday, sweetheart.
1: Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today.
0: So we're going to share some very serious material with you today. What are the significant features of a supernatural visitation by God?
1: Yes, and again, we're sharing from Reverend Owen Murphy's very short book, called When God Stepped Down from Heaven. He wrote this book with the intention that it would promote revival everywhere that it was read. So we pray that as you listen to this message now, that this would prompt a revival in you and in your family and in your community. So what are the supernatural features of a visitation from God? What does it actually look like when we talk about revival? So the first feature is God in his holiness and his presence. So undoubtedly, the outstanding feature of every spiritual awakening has been the deep consciousness of the presence and holiness of God. And this presence and holiness of God is so overwhelming at times that people were afraid to open their mouths lest they utter words that would bring upon them the judgments of God. Sinners, overawed by the divine presence, would literally fall, helplessly, crying for mercy. People walked quietly before God, and as in every true revival, the stores became a pulpit, the homes became a sanctuary, and the hearts became an altar. The second feature of a supernatural visitation of God is conviction of sin. Jesus said this would be the case when he promised to send the Holy Spirit. He said that when the Holy Spirit was in us, that he would bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's in the Gospel of John. Wherever there is a manifestation of the holiness of God, there will also be a revelation and conviction of sin. And this, without doubt, has been the second outstanding feature of revival. So in other words, the natural response when you actually encounter the holiness of God is to then come under conviction of sin, if you be in any sin. A visiting minister of Lewis, where there was the revival in the Hebrides, declared, So tremendous has been the sense of an awareness of God that I have known men out in the fields, others at their looms, so overcome that they were prostrate upon the ground. One outstanding trophy of grace, converted while crossing a field, testified, So awful was the sense of God's presence that even the grass beneath my feet and the rocks around me seemed to cry out, Flee to Christ for refuge. So real and deep has been the conviction of sin, That even the most hardened sinners, tough, hardened, and notorious characters, have literally cried out in agony of soul. Some have been found lying helpless by the roadsides, stricken with conviction as in the days of John Wesley, Charles Finney, and the Welsh Revival. Another remarkable feature has been the persistent nature of the work of the Spirit in following men and women until decision was made. Such was the case of a young man who found, like Jonah, that it is impossible to escape from God. This is his story. One night, after being spoken to about his personal need of salvation, conviction suddenly gripped him, and he began to tremble. This won't get hold of me, he muttered. I'll get away from here and drink my way out of it. Entering the drinking shop, he ordered his drink, But to his consternation, he overheard a group of men discussing their own great conviction of sin and fear of being lost. He trembled even more. This is no place for a man who wants to shake this off, he growled. I'll go over to the dance, and I'll dance my way out of it. He hadn't been in the dance very long, when a young lady came up to him, exclaiming, Oh, where would eternity find us if God should strike us dead tonight? Tremendous conviction swept down upon the young man, and he surrendered himself to Christ. So widespread was the work of conviction of sin that in some districts hardly a person escaped. A man who had very little time for God was one day driving along the road when he suddenly saw before him a vision of hell. Startled, he jammed on his brakes, pulled the car into the roadside, and then kneeling beside it surrendered to Christ. Sometimes conviction rested upon sinners for days, causing great distress of mind. Such was the case of a man so convinced of his godless life and seemingly unable to get peace of mind in spite of repentance, that he rushed down to the seashore and, hiding among the rocks, prepared to commit suicide. A young woman, while kneeling in prayer, had a vision of this man. God showed her exactly where he was and what he was about to do. Quickly rising to her feet, she called her minister, instructing him where to find the unfortunate man. The minister arrived just in time to save the man not only from physical death, but also an eternal hell. One of the men, who later became a wonderful trophy of God's grace, was out in the fields when great conviction fell upon him. He began to tremble violently. "'You're not a sissy,' he said to himself. "'What's the matter with you?' The voice of God seemed to thunder in his soul. You are a poacher and a Sabbath breaker. He knew what God meant. He had been breaking the law, poaching. He was a drunkard, a real godless man, and this was a new experience to him. Feeling miserable and wretched because of his great burden of sin, he went along to the church and was gloriously converted. A man sitting in a hotel was met by God in the same amazing way. Stretching forth his hand, he was about to pick up his beer, when he suddenly became conscious of the presence of God. He began to tremble. Great conviction took hold of him as the voice of God began to thunder in his soul, and putting down his beer, he gave up his drinking habit. Shortly afterwards, he was gloriously converted and became a real witness for God. Here is the kind of revival we need, the supernatural power of God gripping the hearts of men and women in soul-shaking conviction, even while they are dabbling in their sins. Many who came under this strange manifestation of God were stricken with conviction and left helpless where they had fallen." while others have cried out in agony of mind and repentance for days before they could find peace with God. Such is the tremendous heart-searching conviction that comes from a genuine heaven-sent visitation of God. Sometimes it is terrible to behold. You know, Pastor Ray and I were, were talking about this material last night. And it struck me that this is the kind of experience that sinners are going to have on the day of judgment, where they're going to be confronted with the holy presence of God, and they're going to come under this fearful shaking and trembling because they're so aware of their sin. And it's God in his mercy that brings this experience on us while we're still alive. And there's a chance for repentance. Because after we're dead, once we go to the judgment, we won't be able to repent. So it's, it's an incredible grace and mercy of God that he would visit us in this way.
0: But let's be clear. God does not owe us this kind of visitation. Man is a moral agent. And he is responsible before God to repent of his sin and to be washed by the blood of Jesus. God does not owe you some spectacular experience of the supernatural for you to repent. You are responsible. Mister, hear me. You are responsible for your idolatry, for your sexual uncleanness, for your alcoholism. You are responsible for your ambition that drives you to money. You are responsible before a holy God and he does not owe you this kind of visitation. Now we are pleading with God to bring this kind of visitation. We're pleading with God to come and move in your heart to shake you out of the lethargy and the wickedness of our day. And the great sadness of our heart is that we come and do this broadcast day after day, but we don't hear from most of you. You listen to the radio, and then you flip it off, and you go your way. One man called me yesterday. He said, Pastor, I was so upset by your broadcast today. I said, why were you upset? He said, because it just revealed my hard heart. Well, praise God it revealed his hard heart. But God doesn't owe us anything. We must see the hardness of our heart for ourselves and be responsible for the wickedness of our lives. We're crying out to God for revival on this radio station. We're crying out that God will move through this broadcast and take these words of warning to bestir you and cause you to begin to cry out to God and begin to pray. If you don't heed this warning, you may never have any other visitation of God. You have sinned enough That the judgment of God is easily granted unto you and take you quickly into hell. Read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. That sermon was preached to church people, not to pagans, not to heathens. Do you need to repent? Are you wicked? Have you really looked at your condition before God? It's time. Let me continue sharing. What impact has the revival of the past made in the places that have been visited with this gracious moving of God? Well, all revivals, there are areas that have not been touched in this way. It's interesting to note the fruit that remains where there has been a genuine spiritual awakening. What he's saying is that revival doesn't come everywhere. That's why I'm emphasizing you are responsible before God for your sin without revival. It will be a gracious act of God. An undeserved mercy if he will come and reveal to you the true condition of your heart. History records that during the great spiritual awakenings of 1857 to 1859, thousands were brought face to face with God. In the streets, at home, in the churches, people were stricken with deep conviction of sin and out of great soul distress, found salvation. Bars were neglected. Family altars were restored. Homes reunited. Social evils disappeared. Churches found a new life in the mighty manifestation of God in 1904. When Holy Spirit revival swept through the land of Wales, similar scenes were reported a cutting from a local news at that time declared infidels have been converted drunkards gamblers thieves saved and many thousands reclaimed to respectability and honored citizenship confessions of awful sins 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 have been heard old debts Have been paid. Theaters, saloons have closed because of a lack of patronage. Several police courts have become completely idle in five weeks. 20,000 conversions have been reported. Such were the proofs and the fruit of revival in those wonderful days. The blessing of the Lord in the Hebrides has of course been on an infinitely smaller scale and localized to certain small districts. Nevertheless, it bears the hallmark of a similar divine moving of God that becomes a challenge to seek God for greater things. What impact was revival or has revival made upon the church and the community? Well, Quoting from the Keswick Journal in 1952, more people are attending prayer meetings in Lewis today than were attending public worship on the Sabbath day before the outbreak of revival. Social events were swept away as by a flood. And in the communities touched by this gracious move, you have men and women living for God. Family worship in nearly every home, five or six prayer meetings a week in the parish, ministers and elders building up the young men and women in the faith, and of all the hundreds who turned to Christ, in that first gracious wave of the Holy Spirit, until now only four young women have ceased to attend the prayer meetings. In nearly every home, a family altar. Prayer meetings better attended than four who have gone back. Converts numbered by their attendance at the prayer meetings. Absence from the prayer meeting meant a doubted conversion. Here is a standard very few churches would dare to adopt If we judged our converts or even our members by attendance at the prayer meeting, what would happen? One of the remarkable things about the revival is the fact that over 80 hymns have been composed by the converts. And in spite of the manifestations of God in conviction of sin and warnings of judgment, almost every hymn has for its theme, the love of God. I want to stop a moment. If you're going to church on Sunday, but you're not going to the church prayer meeting, you are backslidden. And if you go to a church that holds no prayer meeting because no one attends, the pastor and the whole church is backslidden. And if the Holy Spirit came to that place, the pastor and the people who are backslidden would be on their faces wailing before God because finally they would see the true condition of their hearts. Social events, entertainment, empty rituals have no power to turn a man toward God. Are you backslidden today? Or do you do whatever you must do to be in the prayer meeting? I've often said the prayer meeting is for me more important than the Sunday worship service. You gauge a church by the prayer meeting. Communities, homes, churches they all felt its impact even the realm of politics came under its influence a crown of people had gathered to listen to one of the leading socialists but for some reason he failed to make his appearance searching everywhere his his associates at last found him by his bedside in prayer What's the meaning of this, they demanded. Don't you know that the people are waiting to hear you speak to them? Turning a tear-stained face to them, he replied, Go back and tell them, I have business with God. And if any of them know how to pray, tell them to pray for me because I need it. The announcement was made at the political rally with such an impressive result that the meeting was broken up into confusion. Out in the isles of the Hebrides today, there are hundreds of men and women who are among the happiest in the island. They are new men and new women. In this gracious revival, they've made the discovery of a lifetime. They have discovered the reality of God and great things he's been waiting to do for them. Today they're miracles of God. They have new homes, new lives. They live in a new world of peace and happiness. Those new lives, those changed homes, those transformed churches stand as living proof of the tremendous potential of an extensive heaven-sent revival.
1: So what is the secret of this visitation of God? We know that this revival in the Hebrides was indeed a true manifestation of God. It was something greater than organization, something more wonderful than a new approach in evangelism. The revival was God at work, God in action, independent of special personalities. And behind the mighty turning loose of the irresistible power of God, there was a secret. One minister and seven members of his church in a little wooden barn by the side of the road who were prepared to stay, stand in the gap and pay the full price that God had demanded that revival might come. And as we read earlier, there were also two sisters in their 80s who were blind, who were praying for revival for years. But what was the secret of these men and women who were praying? What were they actually praying how did they pray in such a way that revival came? So the first thing is that they had faith in a, quote, covenant-keeping God. These men believed the tremendous fact that revival lay within their power through the covenant promises of God. Had God not declared, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14 A covenant is an agreement binding on both parties. If then God is a covenant-keeping God, this promise is binding upon him as well as upon us. If we will fulfill our part of the covenant, then he must fulfill his. If God is God, then he is true. Then his word must come to pass and we can absolutely depend on it. God has promised revival, therefore he is waiting to send it. If this was true, revival did not depend on God, but on his people keeping the conditions of the covenant. Staking everything upon this fact, three times each week the men met in the little barn by the roadside to keep the conditions of the covenant promise. Confident that their covenant-keeping God would stand by his promise and hear from heaven. Each night, as they knelt in the straw, they would renew their faith by remembering the promise of God, and then, in absolute confidence, declare before the presence of God the certainty of the coming revival. Nothing, including the long, weary months of waiting, without the sign of an answer— could weaken their confidence in the fact that their God, a covenant-keeping God, would fulfill his promise. 2. Their Humbling Before God Quote, If my people will humble themselves. God is holy, and humanity must humble itself before deity. Before man can stand upon holy ground, he must be clean. Watch the drama of the barn by the roadside unfold itself as one of the men, slowly rising from the straw, takes up the word and begins to read from Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing of the Lord. Like words of flame falling from the lips of a holy God, every word seemed to burn to the very depths of the hearts of the men who had gathered to do business with God. Then, before the tremendous challenge of this declaration, they unhesitatingly fell to their knees in unreserved dedication and surrender to God. Here were men who were prepared to meet every demand of God. Whatever the personal cost might be, that revival might come. That price, which has never varied through the ages, is brokenness before God, an emptying of self in all its manifestations, a forsaking of all sin and habit, and total surrender to God and his purposes. 3. Their travailing and prevailing in prayer. Every revival that is broken upon the face of the earth has been preceded by the people of God upon their knees, travailing before God. For long weary months, undeterred by the cold and discomforts of the barn, undeterred by the seeming silence of God, undeterred by the fact that no one else seemed concerned about revival and the world seemed to be as godless as ever, they travailed before God kneeling in the straw, or upon their faces before the Lord, in agony of soul, they cried unto the throne, and how they prayed, not the half-hearted, sentimental, churchly, half-doubting prayers to which we are accustomed today, and which accomplish so little. As one listened to these men literally wrestling with God, drawing into the spiritual conflict every power and energy they possessed, One was reminded of the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane, who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. The men who had covenanted to stand in the gap for revival prayed. In desperation, they stormed the throne of God, burning passion, concern for the lost, and absolute confidence in God gripped every word that fell from their praying lips. They prayed until they lay helpless and exhausted. What depths of reaching out to God! They prayed until they travailed, and they travailed until they prevailed. They prayed until God answered. Travail must always precede, prevail. When Zion travailed, she brought forth.
0: The wonderful visitation of God to the New Hebrides is not only one of the most stirring events of our generation, but also represents a great spiritual challenge today. Its scenes of divine power revealed the tremendous potential of a genuine, sovereign moving of the Spirit of God in our churches and communities. While the pattern of events which led up to the visitation amplified by the declaration of the word of god makes it very evident that what has taken place in the hebrides can be experienced here in america the covenant promise of second chronicles 7:14 is just as applicable to america as to any other part of the earth the challenge of the hebrides is twofold first the challenge to every minister of the gospel. Gathered with the seven men in the barn was their minister, a symbol of every pastor who is prepared to join with his people in seeking the face of God for real revival. Standing in the shadows behind the revival was another pastor, the Reverend Duncan Campbell, God's chosen servant he stands as a challenge to every minister of the gospel in this day of God's visitation. Burdened because of the spiritual indifference of the ungodly, grieved at the decline of spiritual life in the churches, feeling utterly helpless in the face of such a challenge, he knelt in his study crying out to God, Suddenly, but quietly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and before him appeared a vision of a dying world plunging into an abyss of eternal darkness and multitudes of men and women speeding on to Christless graves. Then came the great realization that was to transform his ministry. God was not only a God, but a covenant-keeping God, who had made covenant promises to his people. And like a flash of light, he suddenly saw that there was a great realm of potentiality, of power, of blessing within his own grasp through the covenant promises of God. He could enter into a covenant with God if he was prepared to pay the price. He could have more of the moving of the Spirit of God in his ministry than he had ever known before. And from that moment, through complete surrender to the Lord and constant waiting before God, he entered into a ministry that was to cause men and women to feel the impact of the presence of God, fearlessly preaching the judgments of God against sin and emphasizing the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God Hundreds, stricken by the most tormenting conviction of sin, turn to God. Such is the ministry that is needed today. A ministry that is so empowered by the Spirit and loaded with conviction that multitudes multitudes, will turn to Christ. Now I confess, I preached to a church recently a large church but they were not interested they didn't they didn't know their sin they wanted revival but they wanted to keep their sin and have revival you cannot have your sin and revival at the same time So if you're joining us and you're praying for revival, there has to be a complete surrender in your heart to Jesus Christ. There has to be a total turning away from all wickedness and all sin and all habits of darkness.
1: Yes, and I would just like to add, I often hear Christians talk about how they're coming together to praise and praise and worship God, to come into the presence of God, to feel his love, to feel his healing. But what I hope you're seeing in these stories is that the presence of God brings conviction of sin. So the only way that we enter into God's presence and we don't have conviction of sin is if we have repented and we're in Christ and we're holy. But for most people who attend church on Sunday here in the Washington, D.C. area, they're not living holy lives, and they'll tell you, no, I'm a sinner, we all sin, I sin every day. Okay, if that person is truly coming into the presence of God, they will be gripped by terrifying conviction of sin that will radically change their life and result in them living a new, sin-free life devoted to loving and serving God.
0: Cold, formalistic preaching never raised the dead. Only a demonstration of divine power will do that, such as took place in the days of George Whitfield, when it was a common sight for sinners to cry out as in the agony of death, History records that under his anointed preaching, so great was the conviction of sin that some were struck pale as death and others fell prostrate to the ground, others sinking into the arms of their friends, lifted up, lifting up their eyes to heaven, crying for mercy. During the great Scottish revival in 1850, when James Turner, the fiery Methodist preacher, When he went to preach, so great was the conviction of sin that many businesses had to close down in order that the people might get right with God. Large numbers of alcoholics were changed by the power of God. Meeting lasted from 14 to 18 hours. Sinners, hearing their lost condition, fainted away, but came around praising God for acceptance. Among the giants of old time America evangelism was John Wesley Radfield, a man sent from God whose ministry was filled with Holy Ghost power and conviction, born in New Hampshire in eighteen ten, in his early years, while kneeling under a large tree in the heart of a forest, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. In subsequent years as a preacher of the gospel, So tremendous was the moving of God in his ministry that multitudes found Christ. On one occasion, after weeping before God, he heard God speak to him. You may prepare for the greatest display of God's power that you have ever witnessed in this church. That night, before he had finished his sermon, People were already flocking to the alders, crying for mercy. On another occasion, the church was suddenly filled with an awful scene of the presence of God. Then, like a thunderclap, the power of God broke upon the meeting, and hundreds, panic-stricken with fear, crowded the alders, begging God to have mercy upon them. Great manifestations of power took place everywhere, Persons would flee from their homes to avoid yielding to Christ and afterwards be found lying helpless by the roadside until found by the police. They were taken to the station house and placed on the floor, where they were watched, watched until they came back into consciousness in the great revivals of Yale and New Hampshire and New Haven, so great was the conviction of sin that in some meetings, the whole congregation, numbering hundreds of people, were stricken down by the power of God. The greatest problem that besets the nation today is not communism or modernism or liberalism, but dead fundamentalism. We need another heaven-sent visitation of God, accompanied by the sin convicting power of God, as in days of old, that will revitalize both the pulpit and the pew and cause multitudes of sinners to turn to Christ. This is the revival God is waiting to send to us in America, to us in Washington, D.C. This is the ministry that the great God of revival is waiting to impart to those who will seek the face of God in fasting and prayer until God has met them in a new experience of power, and they go forth fearlessly preaching the whole counsel of God, including the judgments of God.
1: The very prospect of such a visitation of God will in itself create problems in the mind of many servants of God, of many professing Christians who for years have been content with a mediocre ministry based merely upon theology devoid of the supernatural. Ministers who have been so afraid of sensation that they have gone into stagnation, and this applies to many of us in varying degrees, will have to revise many of their ideas if they would have the power of God. This mighty moving of God emphasizes most clearly that where there is a manifestation of divine power, there will be strong sensation, but that is not fanaticism. None of us can too strongly condemn fanaticism, but at the same time, neither can we afford to confuse that same extremism with the sensationalism that is the direct result of a genuine moving of the spirit of God wipe out the so-called sensation scenes and events of the past revivals of 1857 and 1904 and you have no revival fear of sensation emotionalism has been the fetter that has bound the hands of God for generations in both ministry and the church. And the great moving of God in the Hebrides is a challenge to us all to face the issue honestly and fearlessly and see exactly what God has to say concerning it. From an honest study of the word of God, irrespective of men's traditions or theories, these facts are very evident. First, not all of sensationalism is fanaticism there is divine sensationalism in other words very strong emotional psychological mental responses that emanates from the supernatural operation of god god himself is sensational because he is supernatural when he spoke and creation came into being Was it not sensational? Even the morning stars sang together in worship and wonder at the mighty act of creation. Every miracle of God in both Old and New Testament days were sensational in the eyes of men. When the waters of the Red Sea parted before the rod of Moses, when the sun stood still in the days of Joshua, when the fire fell from heaven in the days of Elijah, Were these acts not sensational? When Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead, when Peter and John brought healing to the lame man outside the temple, when the Spirit of God was poured out upon Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, causing thousands to be converted, did these acts not cause sensation? Certainly they did. Yet these acts were not fanaticism. They were the acts of a miracle God working "...manifesting his divine power, that the eyes of the people might be turned to himself. The word of God and manifestations of God through history emphasize the fact that where there is a genuine moving of God, there will be sensation. This fact must be cleared in our minds before real revival can come. The extreme acts of men are fanaticism, but the acts of God are sensational." Two, fear of divine sensationalism or unbelief in the supernatural can hinder revival and the operations of God. Mankind today is still only probing the fringe of the tremendous potential of the realm of faith. Nevertheless, one startling and tremendous fact is obvious, that God can only work where there is faith, and where there is unbelief, he stands helpless. The cry of the Old Testament was, Ye have limited the Holy One of Israel, and its echo from the New Testament, Because of unbelief, he could do no mighty work, confirms this fact. Shall we be guilty of the same act of unbelief through our fear of God working in an unorthodox way? We thrill at the very reading of the mighty acts of God in the days of Moses, Joshua, Elijah. Jesus, and the apostles. But what would have happened if they had doubted God? Nothing! If fear of the sensational had gripped their hearts, there would never have been the parting of the waters of the Red Sea, the crumbling walls of Jericho, the fire falling from heaven upon Carmel, and the mighty miracles of Jesus and his apostles. For they would never have dared to obey the commands of God that made it possible for these amazing scenes to take place. That lesson is just as clear today. If we really desire a genuine moving of God in our day and community, we must shed our self-imposed fears and humbling ourselves before God, be prepared for him to operate according to his own prerogative. So let me just stop here for a moment. What this would look like practically is it would be a church saying, well, we can't interrupt our liturgical calendar for revival we have to follow the liturgy or in a non-liturgical church it might look like you know i've been in a number of baptist churches where it's you get the program and it's like there's five minutes for each point there's no time at all for the holy spirit to actually even operate if he wanted to it's just so tightly hammered down And if anyone even attempts to deviate from this, everyone's looking at you like you're crazy, you know, shouldn't you know better? You go to some churches and people don't talk to each other. They just sit in their pew and wait patiently for the service to start, okay? So these are the kinds of things that we have to be willing for there to be some pretty extreme manifestations of the power of God if we're going to see revival This might look like you come on Sunday and the pastor gets up to preach and then all of a sudden five or six people start weeping at the top of their lungs and confessing their sins in the middle of your church service. Now what are you going to do if that happens? Are you going to try to call the police and have them taken away in an ambulance? If you do that, you're going to stop the revival. So there needs to be, as he's saying, this humbling of ourselves where we give God the freedom to work in whatever way he wants to work. And honestly, I have no idea what that's going to actually look like, but I know that God is going to send some miracles. So he continues, there's no fanaticism in a real moving of God, but there will be sensation multitudes will marvel at the majesty and works of our god are we then prepared to receive such a ministry of divine power if so the price of power with god has never changed see that the man of god upon his face see that man of god upon his face before god in his su- in his study see that life utterly dedicated to god and his work listen to the travail of his soul as he cries to god Even into the early hours of the morning, see the floor wet with tears. There is the price in life and conviction and ministry. Then see those towns swept by the power of God. See those lives and homes transformed by the grace of God. There is the reward of those who will pay the price. Such is the tremendous challenge of revival to every minister.
0: We're almost out of time for this broadcast. After one revival service meeting where I invited people to come forward and repent, at the end the pastor said to me, I wanted to come and confess, but I'm not going to undress in front of all of these people. It grieved my heart because what he was saying was that his people were more important to him than getting right with Jesus. So pride blocked his way. That's why they're talking about we have to let go of self-importance.
1: Self-consciousness.
0: Self-consciousness. Well, we're out of time. We would love to hear from you. Please write to us. We need your support. And we need and are eager to hear from you for testimonies, for feedback, questions. questions. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195.
1: And visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. And find us on Facebook and Twitter.
0: You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley.
1: And I'm Alexandra Greenley.
0: And we're from the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you. We love you. We'll talk to you soon.